0: Atomic Habits by James Clear is a recent bestseller that covers a lot of the same topics as Optim Work. In this episode, we summarize its approach and theory and identify areas of common ground, as well as some shortcomings of the Atomic Habits approach. This helps to clarify how transformative Optim Work's approach really is. I'm Sharif Yunus with Dr. Kevin Majors, and this is The Golden Hour. Our online masterclass will help you solidify sound habits within a larger framework of ideals, meaning, and purpose. In this four-week masterclass available on OptimalWork.com, Dr. Matrix will guide you through all the key ideas of Optimal Work with exercises provided to help you master them. Now let's get started. Hey, this is Sharif here with another episode of The Golden Hour, joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, thanks for joining me again.
1: Hey, Sharif. Great to be back.
0: Great. Well, I uh, wanted to discuss a book with you today, Kevin. It's called Atomic Habits, and I know you're pretty familiar with these ideas. And it's, uh, it's something that I've actually referenced in recent podcasts, as one astute listener observed. Uh, but uh, but I thought today we could do a kind of deep dive into the ideas here. So starting with just basically presenting the ideas and then comparing them to our approach because there's definitely a lot of, a lot of overlap in what he's talking about. So I just wanted to get clear of of the dist- the differences in the kind of advice that we give and then uh, if there's anything we can learn from his approach. But then how our approach you know differs and and what might be missing in his
1: approach. Great, let's dive in. There's a lot of there's a lot of good in the book. So,
0: I think we start with you know, it's it's all about habits. So it's called Atomic Habits, and he sees as central to having a happy life having good habits. Do you see that?
1: Yeah, I think that probably there's a lot of variation in what it means to have a habit and for it to be good. So, you know, I think, you know, having a, being good at flossing is probably not the same as being good at being generous. Yeah. You know, so there's a wide swath of things you can call habits. Uh, but, uh, in general, the idea that there's a lot of power in habits, hence like the atomic, they're small and they're somehow discrete, but there's also a lot of power contained in them, I think is a powerful insight.
0: Yeah. And yeah, and he has this, I liked uh, his discussion at the beginning that when you start improving the habits and I, he talks about things like exercise or eating healthy or morning meditation or waking up early, these kinds of habits that sometimes you don't initially see the benefits, but then cumulatively over time, they have a comp- kind of compounding effect. So if you just change one thing, Maybe you can get discouraged if you don't make the progress you think you should be making. But if you change five or six of these things, then those those all work together and you start seeing a lot more progress.
1: Yeah, he talks about the, is it the value of despair or the value of discouragement? The valley, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where that you, you would think that if you're practicing a habit regularly, that you're just going to, it's going to get easier and easier every single time. And at first, it seems like it's not changing much at all. So, but if you stick with it, there's an inflection point. And then the habit starts kicking in more and more. And it gets easier and easier, way easier than you thought it could have. Yeah, and, and so I think that that's a great insight. And can give, because I think a lot of people give up on trying to change behaviors early because they feel like, oh, it's not coming easy enough. So it's just not me. I'm just not a like I'm just not a morning person. I can't tell you how many people have written to us in some way or another and said you know that they were so liberated by this idea that there are not there's no such thing as a morning person that well to the extent that anyone can become a morning person if they approach it the right way and 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 if you have good morning routines, those actually do you get the same pickup, but they never got through that valley of discouragement in the beginning. they thought it would get easier and easier every single day and it didn't. But then, whoa, suddenly it kicks in. And now they find it actually that they are they have a lot of energy and they're enthused in the morning. So I think that's a great, great lesson to give people.
0: Now for him, so he applies, he's looking first at just one habit uh, and seeing, yeah, there's a kind of improvement, there's a improvement that happens here. But then also looking at if you take all the habits you're working on as a whole, and this is where you get atomic habits, is that each habit is like an atom. It's it's uh, small on its own, but it's part of a larger whole. And when you take it as part of a larger whole, it's, it's kind of stronger and more powerful. So that good habits reinforce one another. And that's where I think he's saying you really get this kind of exponential growth as you're developing the habits. So in our case, what we've noticed is that t- there are actually two habits that have a really good synergy, which is waking up in the morning and then doing a golden hour.
1: Yeah, so, so those
0: two habits really work well together, and you see a lot of growth just from. And those I would say two. the
1: whole inventory. You know, in optimal work, mm-hmm. we have this inventory, and those are essentially twenty-four habits, maybe twenty-five if we put the diet one in there. So, yeah, I what is it? I eat nourishing foods or something. I, I eat foods that nourish me. Choose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> foods that are nourishing exactly so that would be 25 but we have 24 habits that all support each other and grow together um and i i see these as being the bigger more important architectonic habits in people's lives that actually structure lives i should say so and they do get easier once you start, you know when once people in the inventory get a score above a certain level they tend to stay above that level because the habits all stick together and hold together and so I think that, yeah, in general, that's true.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So, and then the maybe second idea to cover before actually getting into his theory of habits is his, his notion of, of habits, there are being three level layers of behavior change. So you have identity, processes, and outcomes. So at the at the core level, you have your identity, your kind of beliefs about yourself, or what your values are. We don't use the term values; we talk about ideals because they're objective. Uh, You don't just get to choose what's good, Uh, but and then you have processes, which is like the habits, your kind of daily schedule, your systems, whatever. Uh, And then you have outcomes, which is the result. And he says, too many, too often, people focus specifically on outcomes, like I want to write a book or I want to get into the school. Um, it's better if you can focus on the habits, like I'm going to, to write for 30 minutes every single day, or I'm going to put in an hour on my college applications every or whatever. Uh, but he's, he actually recommends starting first with values and beliefs. And I think he's, he's a little bit unclear in some place about what he means by this. I think one thing he's getting at is, is growth mindset, and and ideals like having a sense of what ideals are and what you want to guide your life with. So that's a pretty important for us too, I think.
1: Well, there's a there's a problem I think with coming up with these thinking of, and this is a slightly complex theory that he presents. Usually, we talk about outcomes and process, you know, processes. So you have. You know, you can be focused on, you know, getting the ball in the basket, or you can be focused on the right form of how to throw the basketball. So, and those are the usually two things. And he's adding in a third here, your identification of yourself as a basketball player. So like, I am a basketball player. And he says that really you want to start thinking about that as a kind of habit, the way that you think of yourself as a habit. I think that's where he's on his shakiest grounds. So I know you wanted to delay any critique <laughs> until we gave him full credit. But, but I think this one is like just identifying yourself as a basketball player. Well, maybe it makes you more likely to engage the process of practicing and getting the form right, but it doesn't produce that process directly. There's a choice that you make, you know, and that choice doesn't necessarily depend on some label that you have given some kind of credence to in your head. You know, I think it's, you can't reduce choices to something like that of just saying words in your head. I am a basketball player. And now that's just going to produce my practicing. Does that sound fair to? Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, you're, it's a little bit like we talk about positive self talk as to distinguish it from reframing. It's a little bit like that.
1: Yeah. And so at least I think that. There is a good application of it, which is that it's true, the more you see a vision of yourself in a certain way, that that image is what we think of as the basis of reframing. It's this image of you possessing a desirable quality you know, that motivates you to want to be like that. And so that's the image of the Kalan that Aristotle talks about, you know, that, and that, ad, that's how you shape a future action is before you do it, you think, okay, what is the image of what I want this to look like? So with that tweak, if you call that the identity, you know, and then you say, and then that helps you to shape the process and that will give you the best outcome, then you have a tight theory, but it could be misused if people just were to read some of the things about this, these identity statements. Cause like if a person says, you know, I am just really generous. Well, that might not make him a generous person. In fact, it might make him less generous because he'll be less apt to try practicing it because he thinks he already possesses that virtue of generosity. So, a lot of times, people think that they're really like kind, uh, you know, and um, easygoing, and in fact, they're somewhat tyrannical in certain areas, you know, and they can be really unkind, and they just don't see it because they believe this about themselves. So that's why I think that's the tricky thing, but if if those people were to really form an image in their mind before doing something about being kind or affable or easygoing would look like, and then make sure they're using that to shape their next behavior, it would help. So it's there's it says the identity needs to be your your understanding of how you most want to be, rather than a label of how you are. That's the big distinction.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now when you're working with with patients or working with people do you do a lot of this kind of identity work before getting into behavioral change? I, I recall, uh, and actually we incorporated this into the true success tool on optinwork.com, is that sometimes people think that they have to no longer be an anxious person before they can be loving. It's like, okay, first I have to get over my anxiety and then I can, you know, give my attention to the people closest to me. And one of the flips you try to get, help people to see is that, no, actually you can have the, anxiety or the nervousness and still be loving, or you can have the feeling of impatience and still be patient. So actually there's, there's a kind of an interplay between behavior, feeling, and identity. It's very subtle, but powerful. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And that's what frees people. When people really see that, wait a second, what matters most for me in life is to be loving and generous and caring and attentive and, all these beautiful qualities, the forms the Kalan can take. Well, then they see that I could still have my anxiety and be practicing those things. That, and then they realize that the key thing here is not the presence or absence of anxiety. It's what am I actually choosing to focus on and do in the moment? If I do the loving thing and the kind thing, that will actually start to shape me. And I don't have to wait for my anxiety to go away or for the craving to go away. So, and I think that the problem with most um, theories of habit formation that come from animal models is that they put everything on the craving or the fear as if that is the central thing to habit change. And then the idea would be like, oh, like somehow I have to like outsmart my craving or get around my craving You know, I'll out strategize it and then the craving will never even get triggered. And then I'll be free to change my habits because I won't have this craving standing in the way anymore, or I won't have my fear standing in the way anymore. And when it comes to habit formation, it all comes down to cravings and fear if you're talking about animals. Mm -hmm.
0: So I think that's a great transition to get into the meat of his approach to habits uh, so I think, yeah, maybe I can just briefly summarize it. Actually, before, I mean, stepping back a little bit, it's, I think it's very compelling to readers because it's a kind of elegant theory that's grounded in science and has clear applications to tell you what to do. Um, so in in one sense, it's it's, it's uh, very kind of impressive as like a, a self-help or personal growth book in, in the way, uh, in its elegance.
1: And it's probably helped an enormous number of people. I mean, And so because if for the right person in the right time, it might just be exactly the thing they needed to really get them to make progress.
0: So yeah, so his approach. So he says habits form according to a four-step process. So first you have a cue that kind of gets you thinking about it. And then you have a craving internally uh, that causes you to want to do the thing. Uh, and then you have your actual response, your action, and then you have a reward that then reinforces the formation habit, the, 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 the forming of the habit. So these are the four steps, cue, craving, response, reward. And then his advice for how to then shape good habits is basically do one thing for each of those steps. So in, in, for the cue. Make the habit obvious. So, for example, if you want to develop a habit of reading, then leave the book you want to read out on your uh, living room table to make it super obvious. Uh, so, Q, that's Q. Then, craving the rule, law is is this the, the first law? Make it obvious. The second law is make it attractive. Uh, and then, for response, the third law is make it easy. And then for reward, the fourth law is make it satisfying. And then he has opposite. If you want to break a bad habit, there's inversions for each of those laws. So make it invisible, make it unattractive, make it difficult, make it unsatisfying. So it's kind of interesting. It's it's actually in some ways, in one kind of way, like similar to our approach where With reframing mindfulness challenge, we said, hey, there are these three steps for the amygdala, for anxiety, right? Detect the threat, sound the alarm, watch the response. And so to shape each of those steps is reframing mindfulness challenge. So there's kind of at some level, like a structural
1: level, a similarity of how he's going about deriving his theory, I think. Exactly. And and insofar as there's similarities, it's because we're trying to derive them from actually in some ways from the brain and animal models and how things work. So I think, yeah, no, I think you gave a great summary there of, you know, of, of his idea. And if you apply it to an animal, you could see that, well, you know, If you want to change a dog's behavior, let's say the dog keeps, you know, jumping up on the couch and eating the potato chips. Well, okay, you know, is the you know the the cue is that it sees the potato chips on the couch, and then, you know, and that triggers a craving in the dog, and so the dog then does the behavior, jumping on the couch, and then the reward is it eats the potato chips, and so you could say that that's how the dog gets the habit of doing this. Is that it did it once and it was rewarding, and then keeps doing it. And if you want to break that habit, then you have to undo each of those steps. Um, And so insofar as it goes within a certain kind of, within certain limits, you know, it has the benefit of seeming complete, but I would say it's not complete. So, and, and that, uh, but I think that people can get attracted to its seeming completeness. (laughs) So... Until it's like, it's like a model that fits tightly together. And they're like, well, wait a second. What habits does this actually apply to in humans? Like, I understand it applies to dogs. You know, and okay, humans, it applies to drug use. Uh, and, you know, perhaps. Uh, and but does it really apply? Is it actually... I think the more you apply it to human behavior, the less wise it gets. You remember the... What's the reward for reading uh, that he suggests? That he
0: suggests, yeah. I, well, I think I, I may have given this as an example, like to have ice cream after, while yeah, you're exactly. or after you're reading or something like that.
1: Yeah, so that's the problem is if, if you think of uh, cravings as being the ultimate driver of human behavior and somehow being the necessary engine of human behavior, the way they are for animals then you're going to say, oh, you would, so really what he's doing is substituting another craving. That you have to crave the reward more than you crave this other thing. So, and that all you have are cravings. And it's because cravings are always for tangible, physical things. You don't have cravings for spiritual things. And by spiritual, I mean anything that is not tangible. So you, you never have a craving to be generous or a craving to be kind. Uh, maybe in some ways you crave a bond with someone, but you don't crave being loving with that person in the same way, especially not being what you call charitable, you know, being kind of selfless and self, like self-forgetting and self-giving that you don't crave. And so all the real human goods, which come from human ideals and human bonds, um, you don't have cravings driving the formation. And those are all habits, and in fact, those are the only meaningful habits that we have, are the ones that create a humankind fulfillment and thriving. So because he's dealing with cravings as the ultimate basis for his whole model, because the cue triggers the craving, the response is to fulfill, the, you know, just to somehow satisfy the craving and the reward is the satisfaction of the craving. Because of that model, he's chained to cravings. It's like he's put everything into cravings being the driver rather than And so that means he's chained to satisfaction and he's trained, he's chained then to a completely left brain approach to motivation because the only thing the left brain understands in in motivation is satisfaction. And I think the right brain understands fulfillment and completeness of life and what it means to be meaningful. And those things don't operate in the same way. So insofar as humans are shapeable by these, these, these laws, it's particularly insofar as they're in a left brain kind of structure that they have. And, and so the left brain then, when it tries to change behavior, will only try to do strategizing. Because it doesn't actually have reframing. That's a right brain thing. It doesn't have mindfulness, which is a right brain thing. Or the stretch challenge, you know, which again is a right brain thing. And, and so what you see in, in, in his model is actually a very interesting way in which you have a completely left brain account of 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 behavior change.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one thing that is very absent, for example, is any discussion of hey, what habits should you do? So it's like because it's he presents it so I don't know either. It's obvious like you're just supposed to know what habits you're you're supposed to do, which is true at some level. I've I think that people who habitually sleep in probably know it some They're like, "Well, yeah, I probably should wake up when my alarm sounds," but there's no deeper account in. And this gets to the idea that the habits that he's treating are tend to be superficial habits, almost as you kind of describe them, animal animal behaviors. Um, but there's no account of which habits are good. Is there a hierarchy of habits, and how do we actually progress and grow? Uh,
1: and what Deeper you find rise. in all these types of writings, and, and this might be one of the most helpful and best examples of this genre, you know, of helping people think. Uh, I think it's better than, I mean, there are some models out there of discussing how to grow in willpower where it comes down to eating more sugar, which has to be the worst idea ever because <laughs> of some supposed interpretation of Israeli judges who needed sugar in order to have better verdicts. And it was like, uh, that to me was the that's the epitome of bad advice. That you, know, you don't grow in willpower by having glucose. Uh, but what happens in these kind of books is that they, whenever they leave some kind of thing as obvious, like, well, how do you know which habit? It's just obvious. It means that they're sneaking it in because it's it's actually not part of their model, and so they will have recourse to it, just seeming obvious. Well, of course, love matters. Of course, relationships matter. Well. How does your theory give rise to that? Aren't relationships, aren't the bonds we have with others habits? But there's no sense of that, right, in the, in, in the book. Because it's, it's like, because this is based on cravings, there is no concept of love. You know, and there's no real concept of bonds and what higher order habits look like. So at the most, you have skills. And, and that's about as far as the left brain can get in strategizing. It can think of skills to strategize. But what, what the reframing adds beyond just skills is the image of the good, which is the ideals of how you want, what, what kind of person do you want to grow into? And then even more than ideals are bonds. Because the highest ideals, you know, as you start getting into being understanding and being forgiving, well, all of that are just ways more and more purely of being loving, which is about bonds and, direct, and directing into bonds. And so those are completely right-brained. You know, and th- those, those are not about satisfaction at all, but they're, they are about fulfillment or some kind of deeper sense of growth. And then reframing is what gives you the next step, which is mindfulness. That as you're, as you're seeing these things that you want to grow in that are real, because ideals are real and bonds are real, you open up to the whole of reality to say, bring that you can accept it. And that means what you're feeling in the moment, the emotions that you have. Interesting that there's no role for mindfulness in his. That would have been an easy habit to incorporate.
0: Yeah. But there's no. He talks about the habit of it's good to meditate in the morning. Yeah. But then it's just treated as another
1: habit. (laughs) Yeah. It's obviously good to meditate. So you'll sneak it in. But, uh, but I think that's much more crucial to behavior change in general, right? That, that you learn to be mindfully aware before you automatically act. You be mindfully aware of what you're feeling if it's being driven by a feeling. But not all automated actions are driven by feelings. Sometimes it's just overlearned behaviors. Yeah, And so that I floss after brushing my teeth isn't, you know, it's like that's just, that's just the pattern I've always done. You know, it's, it's like when I put my shoes away, I tend to put the right ones higher and the left ones lower into a little shoe caddy. So, you know, it's just okay, but that is not like a meaningful habit but it definitely is a consistent behavior that I do. It, it, it is a habit, but there's no craving. Um, so yeah, I think that my, mindfulness is like an extension of a reframe. Like to reframe, only humans reframe. Animals can't reframe. To be mindful, only humans are mindful, right? Animals can't be. And then to have the, the stretch challenge is actually mindfulness of the the, the whatever the stretch is. It could be a craving, but could also just be a stretch of effort Uh, that then gets continued through time. You know, and so it's like you stay mindful and you, you keep it up and you try to keep it higher and higher. So as you, as you, as you do the task, but that kind of quality challenge is also a completely human thing. So I think that what's distinctly human, which is reframing mindfulness and quality challenge is specifically left out of the model. And so, what you're left with is a way of accomplishing. If you have already a reason why the reframe, you know, and the presence of mind and attentiveness, you know, and and can embrace the challenge, then you can use these as ways of strategizing. And so, I think this is what the strength of the book is: the book gives us strategies for 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 building, uh, for, for actually changing particular habits that can't guide you as to which habits to try building and, or why?
0: Well, I think that's a great way of kind of getting to the core of things. So, and we've, we're kind of basically at the end of our time. So I don't know if there's any other points that you want to discuss or any final points you want to leave us with?
1: No, I think what's the, the just the best part of the book to end on a good note is that what he does have, which is right-brained, is the idea of a growth mindset. So, and that people can change and we can improve our lives. And so even though I would say he goes about in a kind of left brain way and leaves out the distinctly human, it still is a powerful message of the possibilities that lie within human nature and for us to be able to change ourselves. And I think that is an encouragement that everyone should take to heart.
0: Awesome. Well, hey, Kevin, thanks so much for, for joining us and shedding light on this very uh influential book.
1: No, and thanks so much for your work of of really helping me to understand it and summarize it. So thank you. Of course.
0: Okay, great. Well, we'll be back next week. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to check out optimwork.com for a set of online tools to help you engage challenge in your life. See you next week.